Over the last six months, without question, one of the most nuanced geopolitical relationships has made it to the forefront of mainstream media. This week, we answer the question, what in the world is going on with the US and China? The tech community has taken a very strong perspective on US-China relations, and there are a number of complex, intertwined issues to unpack. Jacob Helberg is one of the most respected and thoughtful policy experts on this topic. Jacob currently serves as a senior advisor at the Stanford University Cyber Policy Center and is an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he's writing a forthcoming book on U.S. foreign policy and national security, technology policy, and China. Previously, Jacob served as a senior policy advisor at Google. In this conversation, we unpacked whether the U.S. and China are in a Cold War, the TikTok ban and implications for future executive orders, whether U.S.-China relations are fracturing the global internet, and the plausibility of reshoring supply chains. Jacob, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ramin. Yeah, you know, Jacob, really excited to have you on the show today to discuss a topic that I think has been, you know, at the forefront for many folks over the last six months, which is U.S. and China relations. Uh, And before we dive into the discussion, I want you to give our listeners just a bit more perspective on your background and how you came to develop your perspective on the U.S. and China. Sure. So I spent a lot of time at Google focused on addressing challenges spanning from foreign interference to disinformation and what at the time we called information integrity. During that time, I saw the tech industry caught in the crosshairs of a new geopolitical landscape where governments view technology companies as both proxies as well as targets of their respective national power. And I also briefly worked on Project Dragonfly for a few months before it leaked to The Intercept. And actually at the time, I remember mentioning to one of my colleagues that the approach essentially amounted to piloting a one company, two systems model. I was incredibly skeptical and had some personal moral reservations about the project, but I also understood the well-intentioned arguments for wanting to have a presence in the world's largest internet market And ultimately, the experience forever convinced me that the one company, two systems approach doesn't work. And most recently, I had the tremendous pleasure of joining an incredibly talented group of folks at Stanford University's program on geopolitics and technology, where I've been working on a book that's at the nexus of national security, China, and technology policy. And so let's let's take a step back, Jacob, and frame the discussion. And and I'm going to start with the 50,000 foot question, right, which is, do you believe the U.S. and China are in a Cold War today? Uh, and I'm interested on your perspective, even on the framing of that question, if you find it accurate. But give us a perspective on where we are today and how we got here. That's an incredibly important question. And I wish we could confidently sit here and say that the Chinese Communist Party was at peace with itself and with the world. Romain, I genuinely wish we could say with a straight face that although China and the United States have differences, our two countries could find common ground to work together on solving global challenges that affect our planet and both of our people. But as President Obama once said, it's important that we face the world as it is, not as we wish it were. And from the willful, lethal export of fentanyl to our country, to the rampant theft of intellectual property, to the undermining of democracy around the world, the military intrusions in other countries, and Most recently, the very disturbing revelations of genocide against Uyghurs, we need to be honest with ourselves about the fact that that's, as Orwell once eloquently put it, a piece that's not really a piece. So in my view, the, the question today 
is at what point do we start pushing back as a country? How many more fatalities from fentanyl is it going to take? And how many more billions in intellectual property stolen from American companies? When do we start defending our people, our companies, and our democracy? And those that religiously cling to a bygone status quo are, in my view, embracing a peace that's conditioned on America abdicating a lot of its core interests. And I don't think it's a diplomatic achievement to write home about. I think we can do a lot better as a country if we make the decision at the end of the day to push back in a material way. I think that means introducing some sticks to disincentivize the CCP's nefarious behavior. So pushing back would entail being in a de facto Cold War, not by choice, but by necessity. We've been extraordinarily patient as a country, and I think at this point, Americans deserve and expect some steps of self-defense. And today, you're seeing an awakening in Washington and Silicon Valley. 75, there was a recent poll uh, not long ago that showed that 75% of the public believes we should prioritize human rights over economics in our relationship with China. So although it's hard, it's important that we be honest with ourselves that Good faith hasn't gotten to where we want to be as a country up until now. And I wish we hadn't gotten to this point, but yes, I think we're undeniably in a cold war. And the last point I'd make is that a lot of my uh, colleagues in academia sometimes argue that we're not in a cold war by saying that the cold war expression specifically and squarely referred to the standoff between the US and the Soviet Union. I think that's actually historically incorrect and an overly narrow definition of the Cold War as a concept. The reason is that writers have actually referred to the concept of Cold Wars between great powers in the past. For example, in the 14th century, the Spanish writer Don Juan Manuel referred to the analogous concept of a tempid war or a lukewarm war between Christianity and Islam. So in my mind, the concept of a Cold War refers to just the basic idea of two or more superpowers engaged in a systemic, long-term geopolitical struggle against one another over fundamentally opposing visions of global order that simmers for an extended period of time just below the, the surface of a direct military confrontation. And I think that's exactly where we're finding ourselves today. And so give us an idea of the stakes, right? In a world where economies and companies are increasingly tech first and you have two superpowers with just fundamentally different ideologies, one of authoritarianism and the other of capitalism, what, what are the stakes? Well, because of the inter interdependence between the United States and China, this Cold War has a lot, has, has and will continue to look very different than the last Cold War with the Soviet Union. In this new context, our two, our two countries are too intertwined to engage in direct attacks. So the conflict has primarily been taking place through what some military experts call gray zone conflict, which typically refers to attacks on an adversary that falls just below the conventional threshold of war. We call it gray zone because the, these tactics are often said to be in the murky quote unquote gray zone between war and peace. As I saw up close during my time at Google, the technology dimension of this Cold War is really taking place on two fronts. There's a software side and there's a hardware side. On the software side, you have China, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Iran, 
trying to distort and manipulate what you see on the front end of your screen. These are essentially the issues we've seen in headlines related to disinformation, information operations, issues related to Russia's face app or even China's TikTok. On the hardware side, you have China quietly working to expand its control over everything on the back end of your device. And that's the spectrum of issues related to Huawei and ZTE. And these typically take the form of very expensive, multi-billion dollar internet infrastructure projects, which is why China has, up until this point, essentially been America's only real competitor on the hardware front of this battle. The reason that I think that the hardware front of this conflict is the most important one is that if your hardware is compromised, so is everything that sits on top of it. Control at the hardware level could give China the engineering capability to enforce its norms of censorship and surveillance well beyond its, its own borders. So at its core, this context is uh, really boils down to a choice between competing visions of world order. And Tim Cook very eloquently uh, pointed this out in the speech at the EU Parliament, where he said that it's about choosing what kind of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world where the internet is decentralized, free, and empowers ordinary people? Or do we want to live in a world where the internet is centralized, repressive, and essentially a government tool of political control? That is fundamentally the choice we have before us today, and technology companies are caught in the crosshairs between two profoundly different visions of world order. And ultimately, as I wrote just a few weeks ago, I think that it's only a matter of time before straddling both sides of the great firewall becomes very untenable for tech companies and they ultimately become forced to pick a side. It's especially interesting and there's a, there's a lot of pieces there, Jacob. I know for our audience specifically also, I'd love to unpack, right? Concepts like, you know, one company, two systems. But be before we jump into some of those details, when I take a step back, I think the Main Street thought and practice over the last 30 years has been outsourcing to China, right? I mean, you mentioned Tim Cook and, and Apple is, you know, one of the canonical examples of this, right? Cheap and readily available labor uh, empowered American consumerism. And there is yeah. a fundamental danger in the model that we're seeing play out now, which is this idea of China weaponizing supply chains and, and information networks. And you wrote recently uh, which I found very profound and compelling, a de-industrialized United States is a disarmed United States. Unpack that concept a little bit more. That concept is really about two things. It's about access to our supply chains and the integrity of both our supply chains and our information networks. The issue of access is primarily about our ability to access supply chains in a reliable manner. Conversely, it's about the risk of China cutting off our access to supply chains that we need to make critical things. And that could mean masks or ventilators, or it could also mean iPhones. When you're the factory floor of the world, you obviously have a lot of leverage. The issue of integrity is about the risk of China secretly exploiting the fact that a large portion of the world's information hardware is made or assembled on Chinese territory. So more specifically, the risk would be that the CCP could require companies, say Foxconn, for example, to secretly embed back doors into the hardware that it produces. This would be extremely hard to detect at the scale of millions and millions of devices and could pose a substantial risk to the protection of our most sensitive information. 
it's also important to recognize that in a world where gray zone conflict is increasingly becoming a permanent and a prevailing feature of geopolitical conflict, failing to secure the access and integrity of our supply chains and information networks is probably setting ourselves up to be precariously vulnerable to coercion, espionage, and foreign interference. When, you know, when I look at when I look at the supply chain side of of that equation, it you know it surprised me candidly of just the statistics of how decimated our manufacturing base has become, um, and it was incredibly startling. You know, when I when I looked into those statistics, and and you have a you have a pretty nuanced perspective on how China really looks to exploit domestic monopolies and then drive companies out of business elsewhere versus this idea or philosophy of leading alongside with other companies and, and on the supply chain side. And, and I think it goes back to the ideological, you know, faction that we were discussing before of this idea of authoritarianism versus capitalism. Let's double click into that phenomenon a little bit more on the supply chain side. Well, I think that's a really important point because it strikes at the heart of what a lot of people have been debating online on Twitter these days. China is fundamentally sui generis in the sense that it's the only large country that enforces, that enforces what's called a civil military fusion doctrine that blurs the line between the CCP and its private sector. No other large country in the world has anything close to this. The CCP has, within China, built a system that favors its domestic companies, that fosters its domestic industries, and it does so with using virtually every means available. It uses the tools of diplomacy to promote, to promote the international expansion of its domestic companies through One Belt, One Road projects. It uses its intelligence apparatus to acquire sensitive intellectual property from Western companies, which often costs billions of dollars and which allow Chinese companies to save a lot of money in expensive and time-consuming research and development. It's also worth noting that their national intelligence law and their national security law, which were recently passed in the last three years, have essentially made their domestic companies extensions of the Chinese state, whereby they're effectively answerable to two masters, their company's executives on the one hand, and on the other hand, a shadow governance structure reporting to officials of the, of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's pretty unique. No other country in the G20 has anything that comes close to this. And so let's let's unpack that with an example. One of the examples that comes to my mind is, is the situation that recently happened with Arm and Arm China. If if you think that's an adequate example, I'd love for you to talk about that a bit more. And if not, I'd love to hear you know another example. Sure. So Arm, which is a UK-based chip designer, had a subsidiary joint venture based in China called Arm China. Back in May of this year, Arm had fired the head of Arm China, and suddenly the head of Arm China not only completely ignored the decision made by the UK-based headquarters to fire him, but Arm China actually stopped letting anyone from the UK parent company onto Arm China's China-based premises, into their China-based offices. And just like that, they essentially declared secession from the parent company. Uh, that is the degree and extent of control that the Chinese Communist Party has in China. It's unlike anything we're familiar with in the West or nearly any other part of the world. And that's why ultimately the only way to ensure our supply chains and information networks are both safe and reliable is for the U.S. to forge a new manufacturing arrangement 
which could entail reconstituting our domestic manufacturing capacity for certain types of critical goods. And so if you believe this premise and, and kind of, you know, take into context the situation with ARM and what happened, I think you have to believe that it's of vital security and economic importance to bring back manufacturing, right? Which leads to the implication that in some sense, we need to reshore supply chains out of China. I'm curious, Jacob, from your perspective, is that the right conclusion to draw so? And, and if so, how do, how do we do it in your estimation? Doing that is gonna require an extensive collaborative effort between the government and the private sector to really take inventory of the products relevant to national security by determining which high-tech and vital goods must be must absolutely be produced domestically because they're so important to national security, which of those goods can be safely produced and sourced from allied and friendly democracies, and then the third category of goods that uh, are less vital to national security and therefore can be imported from the global market, including authoritarian states like China. Carrying out that strategy and operationalizing it is gonna take a lot of time and resources, but there are some elements of that strategy that are worth highlighting. And taking on, for example, taking on China's dominance in manufacturing could, me, could translate to about four steps, which I recently highlighted um, in my foreign policy article. The first would be developing a strategy to make sure that our companies have access to abundant, inexpensive supplies of raw materials to manufacture finished goods. This is an area where China's been very aggressive for a very long time. They have a lot of bilateral deals with several African nations. And that's an area where the United States could easily step in, potentially in tandem with other democracies, to compete with China by offering um, commercial deals with African nations that are authentically and genuinely empowering uh, to those governments, to those recipient governments, as well as to the local population. The second step, it would be fostering the most innovative and productive workforce. So uh, that would probably require reforming our immigration system, including removing the current suspension on uh, H-1 uh, visas, um, as well as ensuring more people graduate with mechanical engineering degrees, not just software engineering degrees, as well as creating very tactical training to address the so-called trade skills gap, which has left so many vital manufacturing roles unfilled, like, for example, operation, operating machinery or welding. The third, I believe, will mean investing in building regional geographically concentrated hubs that yield network effects, just like in Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Motor City, or Shenzhen. Uh, an Apple executive recently said that one of the things that's really powerful with China's Shenzhen as a, as a hub is that everything is there in a very geographically concentrated ecosystem. If you need um, bolts, you can get them. And if you need slightly modified bolts, you could get them at a company three blocks down. Um, geographic concentration creates an ecosystem that produces network effects, that builds institutional knowledge, that uh, leverages what uh, some people have referred to as platform economics. I think that's an area that's under discussed. And I think that um, ultimately our efforts at reconstituting our domestic manufacturing capacity would really benefit uh, from creating regional hubs. And finally, the fourth is um, 
building some sort of allied industrial free trade area in collaboration with other democracies to help our companies wean themselves off their demand side dependence on the Chinese market. What are the what are the opportunities we can seize from you know a low hanging fruit perspective? And and I'll I'll take a step back, right? So over the last 20, 30 years, you know, while the US has served as a moral beacon for the world in many senses, China's played a pretty clear economic game, right? Buying up strategic assets, forming productivity blocks, some like like what you had alluded to, and and basically pushing these strategic assets and these productivity blocks under their world philosophy. What are the what are the low hanging fruit opportunities, Jacob? You think we can we can start to seize on as a country? Well, the low hanging fruit from a national security and information security standpoint would be to develop a clear federal policy framework, whereby restricting the ability of software companies to expose their operations and platforms to data collection and jurisdictional control by the Chinese Communist Party. That's low-hanging fruit because software platforms are by definition much leaner types of businesses than hardware companies that often require expensive and complex multi-year capex investments. So let's use that to transition to information networks, right? So the industrial overdependence on China poses threats not just to the supply chain, but also to information networks, as you were alluding to earlier. And I think this is um, this is less obvious from a layman perspective, right? Um, it's been circling some of the conversations of of Silicon Valley, but I think to most folks, when we think of China, we think of Nike, for example, right? Or we think of Apple, uh, and the supply chain concept makes sense. The information networks piece is especially interesting, I think, because a it's less obvious, but also prospectively b because I think it has much deeper implications. Um, you've talked about Supermicro before. I think that's a really interesting case study on really unearthing and unpacking how China's positioning on critical nodes in these hardware products can really materially challenge the integrity of these technologies. Uh -huh. So talk a little bit more about Supermicro and, and talk a little bit more about the concept on um, the information network side. Sure. So... Uh, the example gets at the issue, the example of Supermicro gets at the issue of the integrity of our supply chains and information networks that we briefly discussed earlier. And the example of Supermicro uh, alludes to the story that in 2015, Amazon considered buying a company called Elemental and was scrutinizing the company's security parameters during the due diligence process. What they allegedly found was a minuscule, tiny microchip roughly the size of a grain of rice that was tucked into Elemental's motherboard that wasn't supposed to be there. Ostensibly, that innocuous tiny chip was able to receive instructions remotely and allow hackers to edit and alter code. The obvious concern is that the chip, which was essentially a backdoor, could also allow hackers, say for example, the Chinese government, to steal encryption keys or bypass the computer's password protection completely. So Elemental servers, where China comes in, is that Elemental servers were made by a company called Supermicro, which was based in San Jose, but outsourced most of its production to contractors in China. And based on the reporting at the time, the concern was that hackers from China's People Liberation Army had taken advantage of the fact that Supermicro's supply chains uh, were based in China to essentially execute the holy grail of hardware hacks. Um, Amazon allegedly 
caught this by uh, because they had the resources to conduct security checks, but most smaller companies don't have the staff and resources to check every single motherboard in their system. So this case became a front page story because although all parties eventually denied anything had been compromised, it really highlighted a small but enormously impactful hack that the CCP could easily carry out on hardware systems without anyone noticing uh, for an extended period of time. And so we talk, uh, it's funny because we talk, I mean, we talk a lot about TikTok, right? And in a sense, it feels like the true tipping point was around Supermicro, um, but or, or some of the deeper implications were around stories like Supermicro. It feels like the true tipping point was when the US banned Huawei from access to 5G. Um, and I, as I look at that as a layman, and I'd love to hear your perspective, that feels like, to me, an implicit declaration of China truly as a threat to U.S. economic sovereignty, right? Because it's really about the element of where in the information network value chain China can prospectively sit. How did you interpret that news? And, and just talk a little bit more about the Huawei situation for our listeners. So I think the, the origin of um, the, this technological of the internet and supply chains and information networks truly becoming politicized actually dates back to the Arab Spring in the early 2010s, in mm. 2010, specifically in 2011. That event spooked authoritarian governments and showed them how decentralized, uncensored platforms effectively decentralized political power within their country and could conversely empower ordinary everyday people yearning for political and social change. And my colleague at Stanford, Mike McFall, who was President Obama's former ambassador to Russia, has some fascinating descriptions of how Putin envisioned himself getting overthrown and murdered as he watched the body of Muammar Gaddafi dragged through the streets of Libya. So authoritarian governments, first and foremost, China and Russia, responded by turning the internet on its head. They centralized control of the internet at home, and they sought to pollute the information environment of democracies abroad. In China, in Russia, that was encapsulated by General Valery Gerasimov's speech, where he famously wrote in 2013 that the quote-unquote very rules of war have changed and that the role of non-military means to achieve political and strategic goals has grown and in many cases actually exceeds the power of conventional weapons. And in China, the turning point uh, was uh, probably came somewhere uh, around July of 2009 during the Urumqi riots, where Xinjiang independence activists turned to Google, Facebook, and Twitter to organize and advocate. And over the ensuing 18 months, most large American content platforms ended up getting permanently blocked in China. And so let's let's switch gears and talk TikTok, because I, I think there's threads of, of that last element that you just you just framed sure. out, right? So to do so, um, I want to set the stage. I want to take a step back, right, and talk a little bit about the China 2017 national intelligence law. Um, because in many sense this gets to the crux of why TikTok, which again on for for a layman and on the surface is a seemingly harmful consumer app um, that teenagers are, are putting short dance videos to as to why it can be so dangerous. So talk a little bit more about that law specifically and um, let's frame up just where we are with TikTok and then we'll, we'll get into some more depth on, on the TikTok uh, current events. Sure. 
So you're getting at uh, a very important point, and some of my colleagues in academia have downplayed the national security risk, arguing that when governments ask tech companies for user data, that that process is typically a two-way negotiation between the government and the company. What they're implying is that we shouldn't really be worried about the risk of the, of the Chinese government requesting access to data on uh, American users because the process will be a two-way negotiation and the company at hand, for example, TikTok, will have the opportunity to push back on some of the things that the government is requesting. Having quite a bit of familiarity with this, I can confidently say that this is indisputably true with most governments. However, it is objectively not true with the Chinese Communist Party. The last time any major US content platform pushed back on the CCP, the CCP pushed virtually all of them out of China. When the CCP doesn't get what it wants through the front door, it gets what it wants through the back door. Operation Aurora was not a negotiation. The OPM hack was not a, was not a negotiation. The coronavirus vaccine research hacks were not a negotiation. The hack against His Holiness the Pope was not a negotiation. Uh, Arm China, the China-based subsidiary of, of the chip designer we talked about earlier, uh, was certainly not a negotiation. The examples go on and on. Unfortunately, TikTok or any other uh, company with critical engineering operations based in China really isn't in, isn't in a position to offer credible, meaningful reassurances. And that's because, as you alluded to earlier, under the national intelligence law, the CCP can force individual employees based in China to covertly provide intelligence assistance, which isn't a process that the company or any foreign-based executives has any control over, or often even any direct awareness of, and yet it's the law. How do you think of the TikTok executive order? And maybe, maybe Jacob, you can frame it again for our listeners just in terms of the context behind the executive order that came down. I, I, I imagine under, under the course of the framing you just gave, it'd be hard to draw a conclusion that's anything but you know, uh, the executive order being the right decision. But of course, that's, that's fraught with nuance, right? So mm-hmm. frame up kind of the, the context of the situation around uh, the executive order coming down and then uh, would be really interesting to hear your perspective on the executive order itself. So I've believed for some time now, and I've expressed this um, in, a, a multi, in a few different forums, that the TikTok status quo simply doesn't make sense for America at this point for three main reasons. The first, as I mentioned earlier, most American content platforms are currently banned in China, including Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Google, YouTube, Reddit, Netflix, Uh, and the list goes on and on. Given that China's internet censorship discriminates against foreign companies, blocks the legitimate flow of services, and doesn't even offer a channel to appeal, there's a credible argument to be made that their firewall violates several WTO rules that China itself agreed to when it joined the WTO back in 2001. So, unlike some have suggested, demanding a basic level of trade reciprocity in no way is about replicating China's behavior, but it's really about enforcing the spirit of of international laws. The world isn't a blank canvas on which China can just paint any one of which uh, of its authoritarian ambitions. We have a system, we have rules, that system has rules. Democracies 
aren't just going to fade into the sunset and America is here to stay and they should understand that. The second reason is that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is believed to have helped the CCP with identifying Uyghur women of childbearing age to load them on trains, send them to concentration camps where their heads were forcibly shaved bald and where they were forcibly underwent mass sterilization. Under UN conventions, intentionally destroying in whole or in part an ethnic group causing bodily harm is the very definition of genocide. And I think this is such an important point because people will often ignore this question altogether. But several legal scholars have argued that what China is doing to Uyghurs meets the thresholds for genocide under UN conventions. And in fact, just a few days ago, over 70, 70 faith leaders publicly decried it as one of the most egregious human, right, human rights tragedies since the Holocaust. And in Silicon Valley, I was incredibly content to see Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, call out the atrocities as reprehensible evils. And um, if, if you look at the definition of genocide under the UN's convention, I think Patrick got it right. I think it's perfectly reasonable. Uh, it's a perfectly reasonable corollary to simply affirm that the United States shouldn't have any part in genocide, full stop. The third reason is the cybersecurity risk that we've been talking about throughout this conversation that's uh, intractable, that's a risk that's somewhat intractable under the status quo. And that's why I would only be in favor of divestiture so long as the new parent company also follows through with moving TikTok's engineering operations outside of China. How do you think about, how do you think about reciprocity as a policy, right? And, and I'm curious, Jacob, if you think, again, fraught with nuance, but I'm, I'm curious at a high level if you think that action makes the U.S. more like China in the way that China is um, interacting and dealing with its international relations. You're right that some folks in the media and academia are making the argument that the U.S. government taking actions against Chinese technology companies would be tantamount to replicating China's behavior. I recently did a joint interview with someone that argued that taking actions would, quote unquote, play into the hands of China's vision of cyber sovereignty uh, for the internet and would go against our vision of an open and free internet. I think it's really important to be clear. What sets the US, what sets the US and other democracies apart, apart from China is not that our markets are completely unfettered and theirs have rules. What sets democracies apart from China is that we are a democracy, our internet is democratic, and they are an autocracy with an authoritarian internet. That's the difference. Every country has rules, Germany has a hate speech law that applies to internet companies. Does that play into the hands of China's cyber sovereignty model? Some of the same people that are against the US government taking action on uh, grounds of national security are also pushing for legislation, forcing internet companies to take down so-called quote unquote fake news. Is that cyber sovereignty? I don't support these initiatives, but of course it's not cyber sovereignty because China's internet is not about sovereignty, it's about authoritarianism and political control. And Peter Thiel very astutely compared it to the eye of Sauron that sees all things in all places at all times. And frankly, I think he hit the nail on the head. 
Um, there's also something ironic about people making false equivalencies between the US government and the CCP using our uncensored platforms and free press. Uh, and you know what I mean? If some reporters and pundits in our raucous information environment don't always see the difference between a democratic internet and an authoritarian internet, I can assure you that people in Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong know exactly what the difference is. I, I think, yeah, I think that last point is especially interesting. And I think that's often where, um, you know, sometimes we have conversations, Jacob, and they're, they're too top down and, and details are very relevant and they're missing from conversation. And I think other times it's the, it's the exact inverse where it's getting caught over the crosshairs and not looking at kind of the forest for the trees and not seeing the bigger picture. And I, I have a similar critique, right, which is I, I feel that the uh, the ultimate moral driver is do you want a democratic internet or do you want an authoritarian internet? Um, and I'm curious on on that basis, if we, if we take the reciprocity line of logic, you know, a little bit further, just how do you think about the perspective on the plausibility of fracturing the global internet, right? We talked a little bit earlier about one company, two systems. Um, and, and, and I'll ask you kind of in the next question, I'd love for you to explain that concept a little bit more. But talk a little bit more first about your perspective on the the realism of potentially fracturing the global internet and you know what if any implications that might lie in that the, china has already fractured the internet since yeah. 2010 yeah. ben thompson pointed this out several times they're continuing to fracture the internet by trying to export and envelop other countries behind their great firewall and peter's eye of sauron analogy is the right analogy because China's internet is centralized and subject to surveillance and censorship by the CCP. And therefore, when they export their internet infrastructure to other countries, they're also exporting the reach of the CCP and further fracturing the global internet. And uh, as I said earlier, what the US is doing today is not fracturing the internet, it's simply uh, responding to geopolitical realities that in my view are um, we are engaging in a democratic, in an act of democratic self-defense. Let's talk about one company, two systems, because I, I think it relates, and I know you have a strong perspective on it, informed by your experience at Google. Um, explain that concept, and then uh, let's let's apply it to the TikTok case, right? Let's apply it to your perspective on whether you know a TikTok divestiture on a U.S. to a U.S. company makes sense. So, in the U.S. systems. We have laws that are legitimate insofar as they're conceived by what Jean-Jacques Rousseau called the general will of the people that's typically expressed through the workings of the democratic political systems. Laws that are arbitrary or imposed by the will of a single person of authority are in our system viewed as illegitimate. In the Chinese system, you have the idea that the sole source of authority and legitimacy is the CCP, which represents, or so it claims, the will of the Chinese nation in its entirety and violently suppresses challenges to that authority. This sharp tension between the political value system that prevails in both countries is a primary cause of the spiraling bilateral competition. Tech companies confront these tensions when they're asked to comply with Chinese laws by enabling, for example, the arrest of dissidents uh, for uh, so-called subversions of state power, or the mass surveillance of Uyghurs, which are rightly viewed by most Americans as deeply immoral and illegitimate. 
for a long time, the natural response of most companies was to try to maximize profits by operating in the two of uh, the world's largest internet market um, and to straddle this divide. I saw this very well-intentioned strategy up close, uh, as I said earlier, through my exposure to Project Dragonfly, um, which I didn't view as tenable. And uh, I think uh, a lot of companies are starting to appreciate that same takeaway. Um, ultimately, the legal systems have uh, irreconcilable contradictions and the divergent geopolitical interests between the US and China are rapidly ensuring that tech executives may not be interested in getting involved in a Cold War, but a Cold War is interested in them and in their companies, and a lot of them are starting to realize the untenability of having a one company, two systems model. Jacob, as we, as we round out the conversation, I want to ask you a final question, which is, you know, if we fast forward 10 years, I'm curious how you think U.S.-China relations will play out, and what do you think the world order will look like? So much of that depends on what happens over the next four years, and that depends on what happens this November. But I can easily foresee a few different scenarios. The first is Vice President Biden wins. America shores up its alliances and forges new ties with Indo-Pacific democracies like India, South Korea, Australia, and Japan. I think that would be a best-case scenario because what that's happening in... Um, uh, we as a country have, uh, because of everything that's happened in the last six months, I genuinely think that our country has a unique opportunity to build a new American moment and frankly, make clear to China that democracy is still mankind's future, not authoritarianism. The second is President Trump gets reelected. Uh, under that scenario, the United States will likely continue to take on China, but will almost certainly do so mostly on its own without very much coordination with other countries. Uh, I think that wouldn't be a long-term recipe for a decisive victory. The best outcome under this scenario would be that other democracies work together independently of the US to stymie China's efforts to export authoritarianism and protect themselves. The worst outcome would obviously be that democracies end up being too divided to be effective and that China successfully carves out um, a large part of the world under a new global sphere of autocratic influence. I think that would be a human tragedy of historic proportions. So the moral of the story remain, uh, people really have to go vote this November. This election is gonna matter a lot. I, I, Jacob, I couldn't agree with you. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I really want to thank you for taking the time. Um, this is, uh, as I was telling you kind of before the conversation as well, I know this is going to be one of the conversations our listeners really enjoy and, and love. We talk a lot on this podcast about what's going on in venture capital, what's going on in, in startups in different industries. But I think having this macro layer of, of the backdrop of U.S. and China relations, especially as it pertains to technology, is a is an incredibly important topic not only for the technology community but you know as you just framed for for us from a national perspective so really appreciated having you on today and, and thanks so much for joining us thanks a lot for having me it's been a lot of fun chatting